Please remain standing for our sermon text, which is Psalm 11. This is, uh, I'm not, obviously not Pastor Sexton. Um, he stepped away. We can remember to be in prayer for him. Today for our sermon, we're going to study Psalm 11. So again, give your ear to God's word. In the Lord, I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word. And we pray that you would be present with us by your spirit to bless its hearing and its preaching. Lord, that you would show us your grace and your kindness through your son Jesus and that by doing so you would transform us to be more like him day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As I said before, please uh, remember to be in prayer today for Pastor Sexton who, who went to Kansas City to be with um, Brandy and, and Jude. And uh, today we will instead study Psalm 11. And when you stop and think about the Psalms, the book of Psalms, it's, it's very amazing, really. Uh, the Psalms are so many things. They are a help and a comfort to us in many, many different ways. Uh, the Psalms are songs and poems. We know in ancient Israel, they sang the Psalms at various festivals and times and down throughout history uh, to the present. We still sing them as worship to God. And like the rest of the Bible, the Psalms are God's words to us. And yet they're also prayers, meaning they're our words to God. They're the record of an inspired prayer life. And so in the Psalms, we have a way of viewing man's experience of God from the inside. And one of the things that makes the Psalms so helpful is that David, the, the principal author and often the principal uh, subject of many of the Psalms, was a man with a lot of trials and troubles in his life. In fact, in 2 Samuel 7, the Bible points out how relatively strange it was for David to has, have peace in his life when it says uh, that God gave David rest from all his enemies in 2 Samuel 7.1, which means that for the rest of his life, he was having troubles and trials. He was always on the run. He always had enemies uh, persecuting him. And, and, and that's so helpful because you and I, like David, we, all, we live in a post-Genesis 3 world, meaning that you are either in the midst of some trial, you have just come out of some trial, or, sorry to break it to you, you are about to be in, in some kind of trial. Right, this is why everybody loves you know, to have me around at parties, because I'm so fun. <laughs> larger context of the Psalms 
is this. In the opening two psalms, set the tone and theology for the whole book. Psalms 3 through 9 are set against the backdrop of Absalom's rebellion against David, which Absalom was one of David's sons who tried to take the throne from him. And then Psalms 10 through 14 are David's personal and theological reflections on the various distresses that the kind of rebellious people that we see in Psalm 2, 1 through 3, the kings of the earth who tried to throw off the rule of the anointed and of, of God. It's David's personal and theological reflections on the kinds of distresses that those rebellious people create for godly people. David's troubles are real. They're often dangerous or life-threatening. And as we read Psalms 10 through 14, we notice that they affect him psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And one of the reasons that these Psalms are so valuable is because David shows us how to hold distress and faith together without one giving way to the other. Psalm 11 in particular is about despair and the faithful response to despair, which makes it timeless. It's appropriate that the Psalms, this is one of those Psalms that doesn't have a historical background. It doesn't give us the event that inspired it. It simply uh, is just set in context with the others. Because the situations that this psalm describes and the dynamics that are in play happen in every age. You know, it was really funny um, reading the various commentaries on this psalm uh, before today that every one of them said that the central cry of despair in our psalm, uh, there in verse 3, what can the righteous do, appealed to their own time more than any other generation. It seems that every generation believes that they are living in unprecedented times, from David down to the present. One of the one of them, uh, one of the commentaries that was published in it was published in 1999, and in the opening paragraph, it referenced another commentary that was published in 1939, and it said, if verse three was applicable back then, it must be quote a thousand times more now, end quote, right in 1999. So why am I bringing that? Am I just trying to hand wave, hey, our problems aren't, aren't really real? No, the, the central question that the psalm asks is one that has great force because when you look out at our society where laws seem to not be upheld, morality is disregarded, secularism and pluralism are on the rise, the tide of divorce washes through the country, sweeping away families, wrecking the lives of so many. This is to say nothing of the personal trials that we are all undergoing. I'm not saying that to dismiss the problems, but to point out that they're perennial. You live in the kinds of times and will undergo the kinds of trials that can tempt one to despair. And so as we consider the psalm today, we're going to, we're going to see the faithful response to that. We're going to see the dynamics of despair in verses 1 through 3, and then the answer for despair in verses Four through seven. The dynamics of despair and the answer for it. First, the dynamics of despair. Um, now, the problem that David is facing in the psalm is, is quite a serious one. Um, and it's one that he faced multiple times, if you read his history uh, in the scriptures. It's an assassination plot. His, his, David's counselors say this in verse 2. 
They say, look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. The image there is of a man of war bending or literally treading on the bow, uh, that where you'd step on the bow and bend it down in order to get the string on, and then preparing an arrow. And the reference to shooting secretly is literally in the dark. And it points, that, points out that the threats against David are unseen to him. They're secretive. And the image points to the underhanded or often secretive ways that the unrighteous use to pursue their ends. Like literal assassins that David faced, the ungodly often try to work in ways that cannot be seen or suspected. The thing about assassination attempts, like, um, a lot like terrorism, that it's, it's not primarily about being violent or destructive, but it's more about creating a psychological sh- strain. The kinds of attacks that David was threatened by uh, erode one's sense of peace and trust. One of the things that can tempt the upright in heart to despair is that sense of vulnerability that's produced by the underhanded tactics that the wicked use. That certainly was the case of David's counselors, whose probably well-meaning suggestion was to completely withdraw from life. Flee as a bird to your mountain, they say in verse 1. If any of you, others of you, are uh, My Soul Among Lions fans, they're a band that uh, is trying to set all 150 psalms to, to folk music. I love how they uh, render this verse. They, their, their version goes like this. Fly like a bird far away to your mountain. Ain't nothing left you but woe. Head for the hills and let's go. <laughs> and there's a banjo playing. It's great. <laughs> Head for the hills. One dynamic of their kind of faithless despair is that heightened and perhaps exaggerated sense of vulnerability that causes people to withdraw from life and responsibilities. Did you notice that? They said, David, you're like a bird, and they are like hunters with arrows. The upright are out, exposed, and the wicked have the cover of darkness. It's just like what the spies said when they came back Uh, after spying out the land of Canaan and gave the report to Israel, what did they say? They said, we saw giants there, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight, in Numbers 13. Right, As as I went through the land, and I saw the people that we were supposed to drive out, they're giants, and we are like grasshoppers. It's that sense of of exaggeration and despair that causes you to withdraw from your responsibilities and withdraw from the things that God is calling you to do. And that sense leads them to ask, again, the central question of the psalm in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Verse 3. Most commentators agree that the foundations, this is the only time this word is used in Scripture, are a multifaceted picture of those things that hold up society and life. Morality, piety, mutual trust, the rule of law, When the foundations are shaken and the walls come down, a city or a household and its inhabitants have no recourse against the enemies or the elements. They're exposed and nothing whatever can be done. 
You can imagine David's counselor saying, look, we can't call in more guards. We can't call in the army because we don't know who to trust. It's an assassination attempt. If we tried to beef up the guard, we don't know if any of them might be the ones that are actually out trying to kill you. They have no sense of, of how to navigate society anymore because things are falling apart. And it's easy for us to, again, in every age, because it's so timeless, to take that sense of vulnerability, that sense of desire for withdrawal, that sense of things falling apart in a post-Genesis 3 world and see all the examples of that happening out in our own world and in our own lives. And the point that, that 1 through 3 is driving at is this, that everybody despairs when their foundations are shaken. Everybody despairs when their foundations are shaken. We all have counselors in our heads tempting us to despair when whatever, in you, whatever is in your life that you base your life on begins to crumble. How can it be otherwise? It's what's holding your life up. It's what's holding your society up. But if that's true, and it is, then you can take the reverse, and it's also true. You can tell what the foundations of your life are by noticing what makes you crack up. You can, you can know what the foundations of your life are when, when you begin to crumble. The counselors were basically saying, look, David, we live to be your counselors and to work in your court, and you live to be king, and none of that's secure now. What's the point? Let's head for the hills. So what are those, what are, what are those things for you? What's that thing for you? Where do the cracks begin to show when the foundations begin to shake? Here's some common candidates. For some, it's possessions, what you have. Some people withdraw from any financial risk or don't exercise much generosity because always lurking in the background is the sense that if I were to lose it all or mismanagement or misspend it, then what would happen? What could I do? What would my life be? For some, it's a certain vocation or a job that has become wrapped up in their identity. It's what you do. How many people do you know that withdraw completely from life and begin to really struggle after the kids move out or when they retire? They just can't seem to find something else to do with their life and with the time that God has allotted to them. For some, it's a personal sense of righteousness, what people think about you. That's why some of you absolutely cannot develop relationships that get close enough to expose flaws or admit that you're wrong because the whole sense of self would come crumbling down because at the base, it's about what I do. It's about me being a good person and know, knowing that I am known as a good person. What would I do if everybody knew this about me, if everybody knew that I was a big sinner? doesn't have to be those things it may be something petty or it may be something important but the cracks show where the foundations are being shaken so what is that thing or what are those things for you or more importantly what will you do what did David do well he doesn't do two things that we often do when we start to see the cracks 
at the doorways, the cracks in the floors. One is to avoid despair by downplaying the seriousness of a situation. David doesn't respond with assassination, assassination. That's never going to happen, guys. No one's out to get me. No, I mean, the problems are bad. Like society in his time at that point really is crumbling and people really are out trying to kill him. Sometimes the problems are terrible. The distress of losing a job or losing a loved one are real. And the sorts of stoical attempts not to feel the sting of such things, and that's becoming more and more common in our society and even in the church, is not a Christian response. To be sure, it's probably better than going to pieces, but it's not the response of faith. And, 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 and please hear me, what I'm not saying is that if you believe in God or if you believe in Christ, that you will become made of steel and not feel, feel anything and not be caring anymore. Um, no, this is David holding distress and faith together. If you look at the surrounding context in the other, uh, the other Psalms, You'll see him start Psalm 12, uh, for example. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases and the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Psalm 10, Lord, why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide in times of trouble? David's able to feel true distress in grief. And yet, um, what he does in that distress is press home the promises of God that he enumerated in Psalms 1. In, two, in the midst of that pain, rather than operating as though God doesn't exist. That's what his counselors are doing. God is not in their thoughts. But David is able to feel the distress and hold it uh, together with faith, to press it together with faith. The other thing that he doesn't do that, that is common is overplay his own resources or abilities. He doesn't underplay the seriousness. He doesn't overplay his own resources, abilities. He doesn't say, yes, you're right. It's awful. It's awful out there, guys. But remember, I'm David, after all. I killed Goliath, and it's all going to be fine. What can the righteous do? Well, plenty. If we put our mind to it, we can outvote and outmaneuver. There's no need for despair because in the end, I am going to make it all come out right. That's not what he says. He doesn't look to himself. What does he do? Well, he tells us in the very first verse, which is the summary of the whole psalm. He says, in the Lord, I put my trust. He takes refuge in God. How? How does he do that? Well, it's a matter of where you put your gaze, where you look. It's a lot like Psalm 121, which is another psalm where David is looking to the hills, looking to the mountains. He says, I lift my eyes up to the hills from whence comes my help. Where from these hills will I find my deliverance? Then he says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's how you can tell it's a matter of where you look or maybe how you look. Because David and the counselors are looking at the very same events. In verse 2, an assassination plot. Verse 3, the breakdown of society. David's, David sees that, the counselors see that, and yet they have completely different uh, perspectives. And that's how you can watch two people, uh, maybe in the same family even, go through the exact same event, and one seems settled and calm and trusting and hopeful, 
and the other one is going to pieces. How does that happen? It's different foundations, right? For one, the, the event is shaking at the foundations, and for the other, it's not. And that's often, you'll see that reversed. You know, in the, in the next event, it'll be, excuse me, in the next event, it'll be someone else going to pieces, and the other person's like, God has got this. You, there's no reason for you to, uh, to despair, right? Well, the difference is, what is that event striking at? Is it something foundational to your life or not? And even in, in my time here serving, I've seen people go through horrific trials. And they're grieving, yes. They're distressed, yes. But they're looking to God, trusting God, reaching out for him. And are they despairing? No. My help is not from the hills, David says. It's from the one who made the hills. You see that? He shifted his gaze to God, and he does the same thing in this psalm. And that ultimately is our answer for despair, which is our last section, verses 4 through 7. Because as he looks to God, it reminds him of four very important things about God. The first one that it reminds him is that God is God, and he is not. God is God, and you are not. That's verse 4. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. As he looks to the Lord, David knows that God's foundation and good purposes can't be ruined by the wicked. They may be plotting in darkness, but darkness is as light to God. God's eyes behold, God's eyes see. He can't be caught off guard by anything. The Lord is in his temple, he says, and the temple is the place where God's presence dwells, where one worships him and meets with him, and it speaks to God's nearness and his availability. David recognizes that God's throne is in heaven. He's transcendent, he's ruling, he's provident, he's in control. Friends, if you want to be settled in a society gone mad or peaceful in a personal trial, then you've got to do what David did and recognize the godness of God. God is present with you. God is transcendent and provident and ruling over all things. And God sees and knows all. Look, if God is not God, then you have got to figure all of this out. And you'll never be at peace. But if God is in his temple, if God is on his heavenly throne ruling all things, if God's presence is with you, if God knows more about your trials and situation than you do, then you worship. Because as the book of Hebrews reminds us, we're receiving from him a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's one thing he notices. Remember that God is God. Second thing, two, trials are designed to test. Verse 5 says this plainly. It says, For the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who, who loves violence his soul hates. Trials are tests. Now I understand that some of you may not like this concept. I mean, what do you mean that God is testing me? Isn't that cruel? Isn't that mean? 
No, it's not cruel. That, that word test or examine is one that's used for testing and refining precious metals like gold or silver. And when you refine something like gold, what you're doing is using the heat, you're using the fire to bring out the beauty of that metal and to get rid of impurities. That's what, that's what refining does. That's what the kind of tests that God puts us through. In other words, God uses tests to reveal the character of the righteous and sometimes to refine it. And the classic scriptural example of this is Job, whose love for God shone through in a brilliant way right after he lost everything, all of his family and his possessions and his homes and his health and everything. He falls down and he worships God. And it was the trial that brought that out. But in a, in a, in a less extreme way, I always think of Paul telling the Philippians that they shone like stars in a black sky. Why? Because they didn't bicker or complain or fight with one another. One another. Philippians two fifteen. Right? It, it brings out the goodness. Trials also refine our faith. They show us if our foundation is God or something else. And since we're all fallen fallen people, it's always partially something else. Or they teach us something new about God in an experiential way. Paul, after all, the great apostle Paul, learned the sufficiency of God's grace and that God's power is perfected in weakness through a trial, through the thorn given him in the flesh and his wrestling with prayer. The point that David's after is to remember that this is the kind of thing that God does. If you know and love God, when the trial comes, he's not out to get you. Instead, remember God's word to you in that hymn, How Firm a Foundation. It says, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. How firm a foundation. This is the kind of thing God does in our lives for our good. He tests the righteous. Third, God is just. That's something that's, that can be easy to forget when every day there seems to be some new atrocity on the news, whether here in our community or in the country or around the world. But David reminds us that there will come a time when, as it says in verse 6, upon the wicked God will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Obviously, the image that he's using here is recalling the events at Sodom and Gomorrah as a type, as a picture of the ultimate judgment that God will meet out upon those who hate him and who hate his people. You know, commenting on these verses, Calvin pointed out the connection in the Bible often between God's judgment and weather. And it's, it's here in this verse, too. It says um, that, it will rain, that God will rain coals and a burning wind will be their portion. Did you see that? You might also think of the great flood as the archetypical example of judgment in the Old Testament. God's judgments are always just and perfect and providential, but they are so in the same way that the weather is, and they don't run like a train schedule. Right? They're, they're exquisite and they're perfect, and we don't have the spreadsheet 
that will calculate when and how God will render all of his judgments. With, just like the weather, even with all that we have learned uh, with science, it's just about impossible for us to predict and understand with any sort of great precision exactly when or where a storm will hit or how any individual raindrop will go. And yet we all understand how weather works. All right, We all know how seasons work. And we all know that God superintends every little detail and, will continue, and the world will continue on as it should because of his wisdom and his power and his goodness. And we should think of God's justice in just that way too. We know that God is just and we know that the final reckoning is coming, but there's great comfort in not feeling that you must chart every raindrop. God is God. Trials are tests. And God is just. And finally, the righteous will see his face. One of the great desires of the Old Testament saints was to see the glory of God face to face. That's what Moses asked God. Uh, you'll remember in Exodus 33, 18, he says, Let me see your glory. And God told him that, that he could see God's glory, but that he could not see his face. That if he saw the face of God, if he saw God's glory... Uh, in an upfront way that it would be too much and he would come undone. But here in verse 7, David says, His countenance, God's countenance beholds the upright. Or in Hebrew, the upright behold his countenance. There's debate on the Hebrew, but it doesn't really matter because the import of the verse is that the righteous will be with God face to face. And that longing began to find its fulfillment in the incarnation, which we just celebrated with Christmas, right? God came in the flesh in Jesus Christ, and we have seen his glory, John says, glory as of the only Son from the Father. We saw God face to face, as it were. He came to, way to do away with our sin and restore our fellowship with God. If you've seen me, Jesus tells Philip, you have seen the Father. And yet it's a future hope, too. The Apostle John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Why? For we shall see him as he is. When Jesus returns, it will be the remaking of the world. It will be the remaking of you, because you are going to lock eyes with God. And the glory won't destroy you. It'll transform you because he's already done away with all of your sin. Set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, with that as your foundation, you can never be moved. Not in the sense that you're unfeeling or uncaring, but in the sense that you are unshakable. You are going to see God face to face. You are going to behold his glory. You are going to be transformed in the entire world with all its chaos, with all its trials. It will be too. Let me close with uh, another stanza from How Firm a Foundation. It says this. The soul that on Jesus had leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes, that, so, that soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our unshakable hope.
who has gone before us into the heavens and has promised to return in glory and to remake all things. Lord, we pray that you would sustain us with this hope to the end, that we might see the fulfillment of it in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.